1: When all work is on one platform
0: and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com.
2: It's summer sale time. We're giving podcast listeners an amazing 50% off an annual subscription to New Scientist.
3: It's really an incredible deal. You can get unlimited access to all the articles on newscientist.com for under £50 in the UK or $50 in the US. Go to newscientist.com slash pod50 to get this bargain.
2: And be quick, the offer ends soon, on September 7.
3: Hello, and welcome to New Scientist Weekly. I'm Penny Sarchet. And I'm Chelsea White. We've got a cracking show this week. We're looking at why our eyes move when we dream, and a slippery case of evolution in mammals.
2: We're also hearing about how climate change is going to shape human geography. And about microbes that live thousands of meters below the surface of our planet.
3: To talk through all of that, we're joined by reporters James Deneen, Claire Wilson, and Corinne Wetzel. Hi, everyone.
4: Hello. Howdy. Hi.
3: But let's get started by talking about NASA's planned return to the moon. There was disappointment for space fans earlier this week when the first attempt to launch the Artemis 1 mission was scrubbed due to a technical hiccup. But all being well, the rocket launch could take place this Friday instead. So, Chelsea, why is the launch so exciting?
2: Well, for one thing, the rocket, it's the Space Launch System or SLS, is the most powerful rocket ever built. And then on top of that, its first flight, the Artemis One mission kicks off a really exciting time for space exploration. This is the effort to put people back on the moon for the first time since the Apollo program ended in the 1970s.
3: It's amazing. Like every time I hear that, I'm like, oh yeah, we haven't been back to the moon since the 1970s. (laughs) I know, and I really would like to go. (laughs) So yeah, very exciting indeed. Um, What specifically then will the Artemis One mission involve?
2: The SLS will carry the Orion crew capsule, and so it's uncrewed, there won't be any people on it. But the capsule will contain mannequins that are outfitted with sensors to monitor what the flight experience might be like for real astronauts. And then SLS will take the Orion capsule to about 4,000 kilometers up, where the two craft will separate, SLS will fall back to the Earth, and then Orion will continue on to the moon, where it will orbit for six days and then return. So the mission is set to last for 42 days, and it will carry a few tiny CubeSats, which are these small little satellites that are outfitted with radiation monitors, and it will also test Orion's heat shield when it eventually returns to Earth.
3: So how come it didn't launch on Monday then? Well,
2: unfortunately, the launch had to be scrubbed due to a few different issues. First, the weather wasn't great. Our space reporter Leah Crane was in Florida to see the launch, and she said, It was raining and there was lightning when she arrived at Kennedy Space Center.
3: Hmm, So that's not ideal, obviously. Um, (laughs) But that wasn't the only problem either.
2: No, not at all. So there was a leak in one of the liquid hydrogen lines. That's one of the propellants, you know, the rocket fuel. And this is similar to an issue that SLS had during an April rehearsal for this launch. Then the tube used to load the liquid hydrogen got too warm. It was cooled down again. And then the NASA team was loading up the fuel when they hit another snag. Um, There appeared to be a crack between the hydrogen and oxygen tanks. Those are both propellants for SLS. Now it just turned out to be a crack in the foam insulation, not the tanks themselves, thank goodness. But by that point, one of the four engines wasn't cooling properly and uh, the engineers couldn't solve the problem in time to make the launch window.
3: Yeah, it was really disappointing. Not least for all the team and obviously all the press I was thinking of Leia down in Florida. So what happens now?
2: Yeah, it is disappointing. Uh, but the launch has been delayed a few days. So the next launch window begins Friday on September 2nd. And the Artemis mission manager said that they are aiming to launch then and that the issues with the engine not cooling down properly are being worked through. It seems like the engine's okay, but there's a problem with the system that maintains its temperature. So... Hmm. You know, I know they need to be really careful and check everything to make sure it's all in working order, but I'm a little antsy, you know, I really want to see this launch.
3: Yeah, me too. And and it's been a really long time coming, hasn't it?
2: Oh, yes. <laughs> it's almost hard to believe we're at the point where it might actually take off because there's been years and years of delays and billions of dollars in budget overruns. You know, SLS was originally planned to launch in 2016. So I guess waiting a few more days isn't really the end of the world. <laughs>
3: Yeah, uh, well, it, when you put it like that, 2016 is so <laughs> long ago. We're so close now. So I guess we just hope the weather stays clear for Friday.
2: Yep, I've got my fingers crossed.
3: Next, we're turning our gaze from the sky to beneath the surface of the Earth. So James, this week you've got news for us from the deep biosphere, but what is that? <laughs>
4: Yes, the deep biosphere. I am now smitten with it. Um, The deep (laughs) biosphere is the largest habitat on Earth by volume, and it could be home to nearly half of all the microbial life on our planet. But we don't know much about it because it's beneath the surface of the Earth. And some microbes can live thousands of meters below the Earth's surface or, in the case of the ocean, thousands of meters beneath the seafloor.
3: So that's really amazing, and I have no idea that so many of Earth's bacteria live that deep.
4: Yeah. And I
3: guess maybe this is an obvious question, um, but why do we know so little about them?
4: Well, learning about them requires expensive and challenging drilling expeditions. And there are only two scientific drilling ships capable of doing this kind of deep drilling beneath the sea floor. So a lot of research in the field actually makes opportunistic use of oil and gas drilling projects instead. We know that microbes in the deep biosphere are very abundant around hydrocarbons like petroleum because they're good to eat. I've never mm-hmm. tried them myself, but apparently <laughs> they very like them. And one thing that we're now learning is how these microbes move around.
2: That's really cool. So what did the study find out?
4: Well, a team used an autonomous submarine outfitted with sonar to identify a section of the continental shelf southwest of Nova Scotia in Canada, in the North Atlantic, where petroleum was seeping out of cracks in the rock and into the ocean. They then took scoops of mud from 14 different sites on the seafloor by lowering a tube from their research ship to see what was living in these seeps. And they were particularly interested in finding heat-loving bacteria called thermophiles. These can form dormant spores when exposed to cold And if they were to find these dormant thermophiles on the cold seafloor, it would suggest that they had come up from the deep biosphere through these petroleum seeps. And that process might take decades to hundreds of years.
2: And so did they find any? drum roll. Yes.
4: (laughs) They heated up the samples in the lab to kill any non-thermophiles and wake up any thermophiles that were there. They sequenced DNA from the samples and found evidence that there were thermophilic microbes that might digest petroleum. And what's more, these bacteria were similar to the types of microbes that previous studies had shown live thousands of meters underground in other distant petroleum reserves.
3: It's really cool. And it all sort of lines up, doesn't it, to suggest that there are bacterial spores on the seafloor that got there by slowly coming up from thousands of meters below through these oil seeps?
4: Yes, that's certainly what the finding suggests. And then the bacteria's journey doesn't necessarily stop there. The researchers expect that ocean currents also play a role moving some of those dormant bacteria, but possibly thousands of kilometers further along the seafloor.
3: But if these are heat-loving bacteria and they're kind of in this dormant state, do they ever come back to life again if they're just rolling around on the seafloor? Or are they just sort of drifting as dormant spores for eternity?
4: Well, this study didn't specifically show this, but it's possible that once those dormant spores floating around on ocean currents return to the seafloor, they could then be buried in sediment gradually sinking to hotter depths over millions of years. And if they were lucky enough to land on another petroleum deposit, those dormant spores might come alive again. It's an amazing glimpse at how microbes rely on geophysical processes to spread around the world, even those living thousands of meters below the Earth's surface.
2: Let's take a quick break to tell you about New Scientist Live.
3: Yes, this is the world's greatest festival of science and technology. It's a fantastic event, and it's returning to London this year on the 7th to 9th of October, and you can also attend online.
2: I'm really looking forward to a talk by evolutionary biologist Nicola Raihani called Believing the Unbelievable, The Science of Paranoia and Conspiracy Thinking. It's such an interesting topic, and she'll be exploring how paranoia evolved and its role in mental health conditions and conspiracy theories as well as illuminating the logic and benefits of paranoia.
3: That does sound really fascinating. I'm also looking forward to particle physicist Jeff Forshaw's talk on black holes. He'll be examining efforts to try to track the flow of information into and out from black holes and what this means for the quantum realm. Go to
2: newscientist.com live to book in-person and online tickets to this unmissable event. Gaia Vince is a science writer and broadcaster. You might have heard her doing Radio 4's Inside Science, and she's just written a new book called Nomad Century. It's about how climate change is going to reshape human geography over the coming decades, and it's about how we can manage this mass climate migration to actually restore the habitability of the planet. Rowan spoke to her about the new book.
5: Hi, Gaia. Welcome to the show. Thanks for coming on. Now, usually when you read a book about the climate crisis and there's a section on climate migrants, uh, it's basically a horror story about billions of people having to move as their homelands become unlivable. But your book turns this into an opportunity. So can you tell us about your thinking on this?
6: Yeah, well, obviously having to leave your home because of it's been made unlivable because of climate change is a huge tragedy. But migration itself isn't actually a really negative thing. You know, we've all migrated, even if we haven't migrated ourselves, our ancestors have migrated. Migration is a part of what it means to be human. In fact, it's a huge part of our success. But when we're talking about this climate migration to come, we are talking about hundreds of millions Billions of people having to move from places that have been made unlivable due to climate change to safer locations. And we can either just do nothing about it so that it becomes this huge catastrophe, or we can look at ways of managing the large migrations to come and actually turn it into an opportunity. Because while large parts of the world will not be able to adapt to the climate crisis that's coming, some of the northern parts of the world will actually be able to adapt I mean nowhere will be um, untouched by climate change we're all going to have to make some adaptations but some places are just better able to make those adaptations and receiving larger populations could actually help some places in the north which are suffering from uh, demographic issues like we're not having enough babies basically in a lot of these northern cities to support the aging working population So immigration uh, will be a huge benefit in providing an extra workforce.
5: Your book is full of ideas to help us adapt to extreme climate change. I I wondered if you could give us a couple of examples.
6: So everywhere is going to have to adapt. We're going to have to move to places which are inland from the coast or where there is naturally much higher coastline to deal with um, coastal erosion and sea level rise. We're going to have to move away from the tropics basically so that means because there's more land available it means moving further north we're going to start getting regular blazes regular heat waves and drought and regular flash floods and so we're going to have to sort out our infrastructure to cope with that whether it's better drainage to manage intense waterfall or whether it's painting roofs white increasing uh, cover of our cities so that there's more shade you know canopies and covered walkways are really common in places where they get a lot more heat but we also have to completely modify our architecture because at the moment most of our buildings are net users of energy our buildings are going to have to work harder and actually um, produce energy for us they're going to have to clean their own water supplies and manage waste much more effectively those sorts of things But also the way we live is going to completely change because we live very unsustainably. The way we eat is going to have to change. We can't eat this heavily meat-based diet anymore. Our protein will come from plants and from insects and from other novel forms, from algae to fungi to bacteria and so on. So it will be a different world. It will be a huge upheaval. The people around us will have come from many other different countries But it could be good, you know, it could be a much cleaner world, a much fairer world, a world where we recognise for the first time that resources are limited and do need to be shared and where we realise that the energy can be plentiful, but only if it's produced in a way that doesn't also uh, destroy our, our weather systems and our
5: environment. About that, so after COP26, we had pledges that if they're enforced... Would limit warming to 2.4 degrees and that's that's bad enough but you're looking mostly at four degrees of warming by the end of the century in your book can you explain why you've used this higher figure
6: if you look at the emissions trajectory the most likely scenarios at the moment all include three to four degrees of warming you know i could have chosen any <laughs> temperature rise for this book but i decided to choose that just because Because I don't think that we really have got our heads round what it means to have this much hotter temperature. So for instance, at the moment, we're at 1.1, 1.2 degrees of warming above pre-industrial temperatures, and we just hit 40 degrees for the first time in the UK of warming. Now that 40 degrees is measured in special temperature controlled little boxes Most of us were, if we were outside, we were experiencing temperatures a hell of a lot hotter than that. Our crops were experiencing much hotter temperatures. If we go up to even 1.5 degrees, which is supposedly the safe temperature, I mean, I don't think people really understand what that means. You know, that is a hell of a lot of adaptation that needs to take place. If we go up to three, three to four, that's actually unimaginable for most of us. People can reach those temperatures and can survive them with various adaptations from air conditioning to not being diurnal creatures. So of so working nocturnally. And there is there are already lots of adaptations like that. But realistically, you know, this is a huge, huge transition and it's not possible for large swathes of po- of people in large parts of the world to make that transition. If you live in a, a slum housing in Mumbai, which is basically a, a concrete breeze block room with no air con and a steel roof, you are experiencing temperatures a hell of a lot hotter than that. And these are temperatures that are unsurvivable pretty quickly, even for healthy people. And I want to start this conversation and say, you know, you may not agree with all my solutions. But just let's start talking about this problem and deciding what we are going to do. Let's try and plan and manage this situation rather than just burying our heads in the sand and thinking we can mitigate or perhaps adapt our way out of it because we can't.
2: That was Gaia Vince talking about her new book, Nomad Century. And you can see her at New Scientist Live on October 8th. Go to newscientist.com live to book your tickets.
3: So Claire, um, this week you've been writing about some research that's investigated a long-standing mystery about sleep. So what is the mystery and have they found the solution?
7: Right, well, the mystery is a question about sleep that's been around since the 1950s. Just to give you some background first, we know that during an ordinary night's sleep, we don't just lie there out like a log. If you put electrodes on people's heads while they sleep to measure their brainwaves those are patterns of kind of coordinated brain cell activity. We see from the electrode readout that people actually go through several cycles of different stages of sleep normally. It starts with light sleep and then it gets progressively deeper and the deepest stage is what we think is the most restorative kind of sleep. And the final stage is something called REM sleep or rem sleep, which you might have heard of. It stands for rapid eye movement because an observer, you you can actually see the eyeballs moving around under people's eyelids at this stage. And that's when we're having our most vivid dreams, by the way. Now, the mystery is, or was, I should say, why do our eyes move? Does it signify something, perhaps something going on in our dreams? Or is it just kind of random, jerky, automatic movements? Okay, you've got me. What, what's the answer? Okay, so the answer, at least based on this new study that was done in mice, is that it does reflect what we are looking at in our dreams. <laughs> I'm, I'm not sure I knew that mice had dreams.
2: <laughs> I mean, I guess it makes sense. <laughs>
7: yes. <Yeah, so laughs> well, but we on. Why shouldn't they? <laughs> well, sure. <laughs> I'm curious, though, how do we know what mice are dreaming about? Well, fair enough. Um, we can't see the content of a mouse's dreams like watching a movie, but we can see what direction their head is looking in within their dreams. The researchers found that out by putting tiny wires inside their brain into the parts that records their head direction. And they also put miniaturized cameras on their head to record their eyeball movements. So they first of all observed the animals while they were awake and moving about freely. And they found that whenever an awake animal moves its head left or right, its eyes do the same in these kind of quick jerky movements. And they found that when the animal is awake, they can accurately predict its head movement, its head direction by reading off either its brain cell activity or its eye movements. Both correlate very well. Okay, cool. So, does the same thing happen during sleep then? Exactly, yes. So, when the mouse is asleep, its head doesn't move, of course, but its head position brain cells keep firing away. So, it's dreaming that it's looking to the left, looking to the right. Effectively, we can read out the direction of its gaze inside the mouse's dreams. Oh, and yes. <laughs> and even while dreaming, its eye movements correlate with its brain cell activity just the same so in future the researchers will be able to read out which direction the mouse is looking at in its dreams
3: it's um it's really fascinating (laughs) but I have to say especially with animal experiments where you're sort of inserting electrodes and things Mm -hmm. what what's the bigger goal of the research why are the researchers doing it
7: yeah yes fair enough so there are two very good reasons The first is that in the past decade or so, there's been a real explosion of a certain area of neuroscience that investigates the function of sleep, its role in memory. And thanks to that, we know now that if rats or mice are allowed to run around and explore a maze in the day, or when they're awake, I should say, when they sleep after that, their brain cells replay the same activity But it's fast-forwarded, which is really weird. And we didn't used to know that. So if they are stopped from having that replay during their sleep their memory of the maze is not as good so we know it's got an important role in memory and of course understanding how we form memories is very important because of uh, medical conditions that affect memory like alzheimer's disease so this new way of investigating rodent dreaming could help us understand this area more without putting electrodes into their brains and the second point, right, the, the, the second reason for investigating it, which is just really cool, because if eye movements during REM sleep in humans have the same significance, then we could effectively get information about someone's dreams just by watching their eyes move while they sleep. Yeah, or, or maybe <laughs> just where they're looking in their dreams. Okay, okay, <laughs> okay. We, we, but we, just to the extent <laughs> that we're talking about their head direction or their gaze... We are decoding people's dreams. Um, So we're not quite at the stage of watching people's dreams in a movie, but it's a start. Lastly this week, we've got a story
2: about all things slippery and slimy. Tell us about it, Corinne. Yep. If we have any listeners who are enjoying
1: a meal while tuning in today, I apologize. You may want to set down the custard or jelly dessert because we are talking about mucus.
2: Mm, Mucus, delightful. This is, you know, the stuff in our nose, you mean?
1: Yep. We've got mucus in our nose, but it's a lot more than just snot. Uh, Mucus is the gelatinous stuff that coats our stomach, it coats our lungs and intestines, and it basically keeps us running as well-oiled machines. Now, a new study is shedding some light on how mucus has evolved in mammals.
3: Okay. um, So what have we learned now that we didn't know before?
1: Well, scientists compared various mucus-producing proteins, which are called mucins, by looking at different instructions coded in mammals' genes. So they looked at a total of 49 different species, things from mice and ferrets to big rhinos, cows, even a scaly, ant-eater-like animal called a pangolin. And to their surprise, they found 15 unique mucins in those
3: species. Is that a lot? Was, is that unexpected?
1: Yeah, the researchers were really, really shocked. Usually animals that branch from the same evolutionary tree have genes passed down from a common ancestor, sort of like a genetic hand-me-down. But these mammals appear to be taking old proteins and tweaking them to turn them into little slime-producing factories.
2: So how do you make a protein into a mucin?
1: Yeah. So that has to do a lot with the structure of a mucin. So like other proteins, mucins are made from building blocks called amino acids that are arranged in a particular sequence. You can think of these sort of like the spine of the mucin protein. And mucins have these long duplicated sections in the middle that give them their unique structure and, and goo-making abilities. So by duplicating sections of the specific amino acids, which is sort of like an evolutionary hiccup that causes a copy and paste, the proteins grow longer and longer, and they eventually transform into mucins. And scientists call this process mucinization. (laughs)
2: Well, that's my new word of the day. I love that. Mm -hmm. So if they looked at less than 50 species and they found 15 new mucins, does that mean there's a lot of others left to discover? Yeah, the researchers I spoke with definitely think that's the case. Next, they're planning to
1: investigate super slimy animals like slugs and snails to see if they've also evolved unique mucins.
3: It's so interesting to see that mammals have independently evolved mucus multiple times. Um, I guess that just shows us how useful mucus is. Totally.
1: It really is. It has all sorts of functions. Mucus lubricates our intestines. It stops animals from becoming dehydrated. It lines our lungs. It protects us against pathogens and so much more.
3: Great. Thank you, mucus. (laughs) That's it for this week. Thanks so much for listening. Please don't forget to subscribe to the show and leave us a review. And if you want to read more about any of these stories, there are links in our show notes.
2: And before we go, don't forget the 50% off New Scientist subscription sale. Visit newscientist.com pod 50 to check it out. And look out for the latest issue of the magazine with a cover story examining the latest understanding on hormone replacement therapy, and whether it should be used more widely
3: thanks to all our guests this week claire wilson corinne wetzel james Deneen and guy vince goodbye bye. bye
4: bye later
6: this podcast is produced by og podcasts find out more at
7: ogpodcasts.co.uk